From the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford, this is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by Rockford Writers Guild. Here's your host, Connie Coots. Thank you, Jesse. Hi, everyone. It is Connie Kuntz, and you are listening to the Guilty Pleasures Podcast. It's still June. Molly McNett is back for her third session. This time, she has brought her award-winning story, La Pulcra Nota. Hi, Molly. Hi, Connie. What would you like to tell us about this story today? Well, I think your listeners will quickly discover that this is a, not a modern story. It's um, it's a period piece, but it, it describes itself when it's set. So I think they'll figure it out as they listen. And there is some mature content in the story. So parents may want to listen with their kids or by themselves. Wonderful. I can't wait for you listeners to hear this fantastic story. And with that, let's begin. La Pulcranota. My name is John Fuller. I am nine and twenty years of age, born in the year of our Lord, 1370, the son of a learned musician and the youngest of twelve children. Though the Lord in his wisdom was pleased to take five brothers and two sisters back to the fold. After a grave accident, I no longer possess the use of my hands. Any inaccuracies in this document are not the fault of the scribe, who enjoys a high reputation, but of my own mind. My pain is not inconsiderable. However, I will continue frankly, in as orderly a fashion as I am able, so that these words may accompany my confession to the Honorable Vicar of St. Stephen's. My story begins as God knit me in the womb. There my knees pressed in to form the sockets of my eyes, as they do in all men. However, my left knee, the cap of which has a sharp embossment, pressed upon the iris, pushing it to one side. While I am able to see clearly, it appears to others that the eye looks away from the place I have trained it. God be praised for this deformity, for it kept me close to him for the better part of my life. My first memories are of two sounds, one ugly and one beautiful. As a child, I lived in Oxfordshire in the northern Midlands. An old church stood in the center of the village, and in its center domain, what I thought must be everything the world could possibly contain, a bakehouse, granary, pigsty, dairy, an assortment of dovecotes, and a malting house. Once I recall walking on the outskirts of this enclosure with my father when there came an ugly noise, dry and papery, as menacing as a snake's warning. My father quickly lifted me to his shoulders and ran toward our cottage. Looking back, I saw a man whose skin bubbled up like a dark pudding. A leper, I later learned, required to wear a rattle to warn us of his coming. In one moment, his eye caught mine from high upon my father's shoulders, and the look he gave me was so sinister that I have not forgot it. It seemed to say that only my father's body separated us, that in its absence, the leper and I were one. Our cottage was built at the edge of the village, along the banks of a tiny stream. One hot afternoon, I awoke from a nap, transfixed by the highest, sweetest sound I had ever heard. It was as if I could see, in my mind's eye, this sweet sound rapidly tracing the petals of a flower before plummeting down its stem. I learned later from my father that one capacity of the human voice had been described in such a way by Jerome of Moravia as a vocal flowering. I went to the window. There my mother joined me, pointing to a nest in the bank willow tree. That nest, I asked, did you make it? For my mother was skilled in weaving and in fashioning all kinds of things. Of course not, she scolded me. It is Mother Bird who builds it. How can she make it so? God gave her the knowledge, she said. Nothing perfect comes, but it comes from God. Then, from somewhere in the tree, the beautiful thick chirp came again, a trill and a sweet clucking. How I wanted to see the bird, but as much as I strained and leaned, she did not appear. 
How does she learn this song? I asked. God puts the song in her breast, said my mother. And how can it be so sweet? Tiresome boy, she smiled. This also comes from God. And my eye? Her mouth twisted in irritation, and she dropped my hand. From God, she muttered. The good and the bad are from God. And perhaps I remember this day so clearly because soon after, it pleased divine providence to take my mother to the Lord. May he be praised for all things. This was in the year of our Lord, 1376, in the month of June. After my mother's death, my father accepted a position as an organist in the town of Bishop's Lynn in Norfolk. He explained to us that an organ was a wondrous and expensive piece of equipment, and only a church of good means could acquire one. We children admired our father greatly, and as the years passed, he taught us whatever he knew of music and instruments. At two and twenty, I married a woman named Catherine, nine years my elder and the daughter of a well-to-do burger. Her father accepted my appearance. Though thine eye may wander, he jested, see that thy heart does not. I assured him that because of my appearance, I was a devout man and had never been burdened with lust or pride. Catherine's inheritance was more than I might have hoped for, and we did not want for money. We had a cook, a maid, and a nurse, and Catherine was wise in shopping, never fooled by watered wine or the old fish sold at market, rubbed with pig's blood to make it look fresh. We enjoyed our supper over pleasant conversation, and in the evenings I would play the gittern or the psaltery, for my father had given me a small collection of instruments, and I loved nothing more than music. Catherine herself could not keep a pitch, and sometimes, when I hummed a little tune without thinking, she might ask me to stop. But no wife is without such cavils, and she was gay in demeanor then, as middling comely as befit a woman of her years, and forthcoming in wifely duties. I was pleasantly surprised in my enjoyment of these and called myself happy in life. In the second year, Catherine was with child, and when her time came, she labored through the night. Never in my life had I heard such lamentation, and I wondered how the throat could bear such pressure unscathed. The midwife came out for the rose oil and sat on the stool beside me, her head in her hands, and when hours later she fetched some vinegar and sugar, she took bits of lamb's wool and tucked them in her ears before entering the birth room again. When finally the dawn came, I heard a small cry, but most of an hour passed before finally the midwife brought the child down the stairs to me. I was happy, although it was a girl, and as I held the babe, she brought another, twin girls. I knew Catherine to be a good and honest woman, so I could not believe that twins must be sired by two fathers. But of course, many did believe it. When the days of her purification were completed, Catherine was received, according to Leviticus, back into the church, made clean to make bread or prepare food. But on the way home that day, some women tore the veil and wimple from her head so that she was made to walk home as bareheaded as a harlot. In the following week, our neighbors spun a yellow cross to mark her garment and left it at our door and spat at her as she went to market and spat upon her babes. My old father, the organist, would no longer speak with her and my sisters and brothers would no longer look upon her. Was it out of sadness that Catherine refused me my marital rights, even as a year passed? I will never know. We did have a common devotion for the sweet creature she had borne. We employed a nurse whose breasts were large enough for two, yet not large enough to flatten the children's noses. And we took joy as these two began to smile and babble, and their curls were growing long. For my part, I felt a relief and pride at their smooth kneecaps and beautiful straight eyes. For though the woman carries the seed of the child, they may have shared my deformity. 
Together, we looked and wondered at them as one wonders at the heavens and all the beauties of nature. They were so entirely alike that only a few tiny spackles on the nose could distinguish elder from younger. But divine providence was pleased to take the life of our dear twins two days apart from each other, the first on the 5th of June at the hour of Terse in the year of our Lord, 1393. Then I too was taken sick and woke from my fever one morning to find that the second twin had been gathered back to the Lord on the 7th of June at 5 o'clock in the year of our Lord, 1393. For this, may the Lord be thanked and praised, for every devout man knows the great mercy he shows us in taking a child out of the world. Yet, had they stayed with us, had even one stayed, I believe I would not have this story to tell. Catherine was a good woman, and until this time, perfectly ordinary. But she began to weep all the day long and into the night, and no comfort I offered was of help to her. One winter's day I could not find my wife, and looking out the window, saw her sitting in the snow with her skirt spread round her. She wore no coat. I sent the nurse, who hovered over Catherine as she rocked back and forth on her heels. Sir, no coaxing could get her inside, she told me. She says she is warm inside the body, and God tells her not to fear illness. Then she leaned in and whispered, She wears no knickers under the skirt. Shortly after this incident, it pleased the Lord to take to paradise my father the organist, and for this may he be praised in his wisdom. I was given the tutelage of some of my father's students who lived across the canal in the old city where there were large stone dwellings of Roman style. I found these houses impressive, for our own was timber, post and beam, and so close to its rotting neighbor that the two dwellings leaned on each other at the top like a pair of bourrées. My pupils were young girls who lived in the old quarter, from wealthy families in which the boys studied chess and hawking and the girls' embroidery and singing. Most of them did not sing well, yet the lessons were pleasant for me, a diversion from our home and its growing strangeness. Catherine no longer did the shopping. Together we went out only to church, and there she would cry. The cries began softly, then grew to sobs, and she fell forward to the pew in front of us, and then into the aisle, writhing and groaning, with a sound as great as the one she had poured forth in labor, so that it was only prudent to gather her and take her from the sanctuary. Then she smiled fiercely, her eyes gleaming in ecstasy. It is the Lord who makes me, she told me later. He speaks to me, and when I fall to the ground I cannot stop myself. It is because I hear the most beautiful music that seems to come from heaven itself. In truth, I did not know if I could believe it. For we know of those who contract dancing fevers in the rainy season when, for example, in St. Vitus's dance, one town makes its way to another in a state of shivering frenzy. It seemed to be a madness of that sort. Indeed, Albertus Magnus has written that women who do not receive their husbands can become full of poisonous blood, and it is better for them to expel the matter. But my wife dismissed this opinion when it was offered. Still, she did seek the counsel of authorities, including William Southfield of the Carmelites and Dame Julian, the anchoress, in her little cell. These agreed that God was speaking to Catherine through her fits, and so my wife had a new path to follow, this time as a woman of faith. And in time, she was no longer shunned on the street. She had earned respect, and her demeanor improved. But though St. Augustine tells us we might atone for any sin between married people by acts of Christian charity, our relations did not resume. At night, we got in bed as usual, well-bedded in white sheets and nightcap. We took off our nightclothes under the covers. But when I turned to Catherine, she would feign sickness or scratch herself. I have worms, she would say, slapping my hand away. No, I assured her, you have not scratched all day. They come out at night. Let me see, 
and smiling, I would reach out to her nakedness, but she thrashed and spun away from me. During this time, I visited for the first time a student of my late father's who had recently recovered from illness. Her maid showed me to where she lay on the daybed, still in a dressing gown of yellow silk. She looked to be sixteen, as dark-haired as a Jewess, with large brown eyes and rather dark skin. I did not think of her as lovely. I supposed that those who were said to be beautiful had very white skin and light hair, so it did not occur to me to define the girl in this manner. Then, too, this dark girl covered her mouth in the manner of those with rotten teeth who have been trained not to offend others. So I sometimes covered my own sinister eye with my hand or turned my face away to avoid the onlooker's gaze. I am Olivia, she said meekly. I am happy to meet you, and I know your father is with the Lord. I thanked her and asked her if she felt well enough to stand, for standing is the best way to sing. She nodded and with some effort hoisted herself up by the table stand. Let us begin with a recitation, I said, for in this way I shall know what I need to teach you. I do not remember much of the first song she sang or even exactly my own reaction to it. My surprise was first that she sang a worldly song, popular in the courts of great men, and sung by troubadours. It made no mention of God. But soon I had forgotten the song itself and marked the contrast between this girl and my typical student, who strained so on high registers, who, if she hit the note, often pushed into it like a German or broke the tone in the manner of the French. Olivia's voice lifted to each note directly, holding on the tone without excess of ornament or vibration, the sweet sound of a child. In its simplicity, there was something wondrous about it, and I wanted to laugh and delight in it rather than find something to teach her. Yet her nurse sat embroidering on the settle, and she would report to Olivia's father. I had to begin with a suggestion, and so it came to me what I might add. For Isidore of Seville told us the voice should be, quote, high, clear, and sweet, quote, and indeed something was not entirely clear. I asked, you are aware of the epiglottis? Olivia shook her head. I asked the nurse to fetch ink and paper and drew a small sketch of this leaf-shaped part. If the tongue, perhaps swollen from sickness, is sliding backward, it may be clouding the tone of what my father, working, as you know, on the organ as he did, and noticing its similarity with the human capacity for two kinds of sound, might call the lower register. The nurse looked up attentively from her embroidery while the student studied my sketch with a worried expression. I suppose that I wanted to lighten this expression, though I don't remember thinking so, only that my throat ached, as it did in the moment when as a child I raced to the window to find that the bird was not there. In spite of this, I told her, your voice at times comes close to a moment of perfection, what Jerome has called la pulcra nota, let us begin to listen for it. Mostly it appears with no strain whatsoever. But be attentive, for when such a note comes, if you know it, you may ever after use its sound to guide you. Then I smiled, for her brows were still knit in a childlike concern. Do not worry, I said gaily. It may only be a short while. And at this she smiled back at me quite fully and naturally. Oh, she said, do you think so? Yes, I said. I'm sure of it. That I should not have said, I thought later. I myself had never reached such a note in singing. Why should I praise so strongly? Was there another reason to do so? In fact, I went over the entire lesson in my mind for some reason, retracing what I had said and how I had said it, and I saw the image of Olivia's open face, her easy joy in singing. 
Perhaps I retraced our conversation only to protract the lesson in some way during the week. In this way, I could avoid my circumstances at home. For that night, as I turned the psaltery, Catherine put her head in her hands and sighed and said it would be better not to play at all. I changed my course and the next evening sang only plain chant, making my voice as soft and comforting as possible. But she drew her shawl about her shoulders and came to sit next to me on my stool. There she repeated to me that the music she heard in her mind, whose perfection made her yell and writhe, was not of the world, but came directly from the Lord. So worldly music and sounds were only poor imitations, distracting from worship, as all worldly pleasures do. There was quiet that evening in our empty house, empty of the sound of children and empty of conversation, empty of music. It was a place where sound became odious to both of us, the crack of a stool, the creak of our bed as we settled there. I tried again to approach my wife in the night, for it was cold and we slept with our clothes off, as always, tucked under the foot of the bed. But she turned to me and spoke softly, John, I have given you sorrow, but the Lord has a remedy We must go to the anchoress, declare celibacy, and I will again wear white. And she smiled, petting my face as if I were a child. This soft stroking of my skin, her face and breath held near to mine, were so hateful to me that my jaw tightened and I fought an urge to strike her. No, I told her. No, she asked as if she did not believe my refusal. And I repeated, no. The next day, my wife did not eat. She couldn't bear the strength of mead, she said, or of meat. And all that week and into the next, she would only sip from the broth of a boiled root. She no longer spoke to me, And though it was winter, she walked with no shoes, placing her toes first so that the boards would not sound when she entered a room. After a fortnight, she was so weak that she fainted daily. Yet, leaning upon her maid, she went to church and to the anchoress in her cell. And when they had seen her, the townspeople, including the neighbors who had shunned her, were drawn to this ethereal creature. Some came to our house to ask her advice and for prophecy. They were embarking on a pilgrimage, they said, and wanted to know if the day they had chosen was auspicious. Would she pray for a woman on the brink of death? Would she find out if this woman might indeed recover? Was another woman's husband in heaven or purgatory? And though my wife seemed happy in this role, she continued to fast. Eat, I coaxed her. I knew her silent answer. I will eat again when you come with me to the anchoress and take the vow. Olivia's strength improved as my wife's waned. I had met with her three times over the course of that month. Often we talked at length before the lesson began, and if her nurse was in the room, she too might join in our conversation. These were easy, ordinary words concerning the season or the news of a birth, or a neighbor's pilgrimage, for example. But because I have no companion with whom to speak at home, they seemed the more delightful to me. Perhaps in any event, the girl's voice would have pleased me. So high was her laugh. It tinkled like a little bell. Now she stood without grasping, and did not need to clutch the table, and her singing had become so sweet and clear I could hear it in my head at night as I lay waiting for sleep. At those times, too, I sometimes found myself wondering if my own left eye was not very far off its course after all. I had been observing it in the glass of late, and it seemed to have improved. Or had I exaggerated its homely effect in the past? Was there any way I could be described as handsome? I had a large gap between my front teeth, but they were good. I was not tall, but strongly built. There was some pain caused by these thoughts for I felt in some way that the Lord had removed me from his protection. One day, 
On her last lesson of that month, Olivia was just in the middle of the rondelle d'une dame son amie from the Chasse Par, in which a high soul was to be held for several measures. She smilingly ran through the notes in the early section, with no strain on her face, but sometimes glancing at me, it seemed, to catch my eye. Vivant toujours bien raisonnablement, let us always live justly, bearing our woes the most peacefully that we can, without a single offense to our love, for the first to fault makes the other live inconstantly thereafter. It was on the penultimate line, en nostre amour, car le premier qui faut, on its last syllable, faux, that Olivia soared over the high soul, lighting there delicately as the tone opened out into such exquisite vibrations that I cannot describe them, only that they seemed to fill the room and envelop us, so that we stood, transported in their aftermath. We rushed to each other, or really the student, to me. She threw her arms around my waist, and I thought nothing of her nurse in the next room and embraced her, let myself gaze at her face turned up to mine smilingly, and for this moment it seemed the most natural act in the world, so that there was no discomfort or thought of its being an embrace, and there was no need for words. Still, she laughed and said, I love you. like to end my story at this moment. I would like to linger here at the very crux of joy, where the note and these words were as one to me. But I cannot. I then understood something about music that I had not learned from my father, or Jerome of Moravia, or Isidore of Seville. La Polcronata is the moment of beauty absolute, but what follows, a pause, however small, is the realization of its passing. Perhaps no perfection is without this silent realization. The wind that had lifted the bird and the room and those hearts within the room grew still. I was as Adam in the garden, suddenly naked, suddenly shamed. I released her and stepped back. I remember that her smile remained and then turned curious, so firm was her trust in the note. This is a good beginning, I said, but you have been ill and should not tax yourself. I suppose I said these words strangely. Later I wondered. The student's head fell on its stem, and she sank onto the bench as if her weakness had returned. It pained me to see that she buried her face in her hands, but I had no experience with love and its offices, and I did not know what to do. I turned and left without speaking more to her. In the streets of the old city, with its sturdy Roman buildings, its flower pots, its neat sewers, every young man I passed seemed a fitting mate for a young nightingale. They wore short tunics with toggles across the front, drawn tightly across their waists, I walked on into the new quarter, past the tanners where the awful stank in its pile near the street, and my house rotted and leaned against its neighbor. In a puddle, I saw the blurred vision of my form in its long, shabby houppelon, its stiff high collar hiding my jaw, which I sensed now, in comparison to these young men, was weak and undistinguished. How I wished to be the beloved in the Song of Songs, whose eyes are like doves beside springs of water, bathed in milk, fitly set, whose legs are alabaster columns set upon bases of gold. Even in youth I had never been the object of admiration, and so I had not minded youth's passing. But I was now full of jealousy for these fashionably clothed young men. At the same time, I was nearly delirious with joy." I replayed those words to myself, words my wife did not speak. I love you. You may not know, if you have not been called ill-formed and ugly from birth, and a sweet young girl has never once looked at you in such a way, how thirsty I felt for all that had been denied me. Suddenly Olivia's smooth face, dark as the curtains of Solomon, seemed very dear. I thought of my wife 
and the slack skin of her neck, her visions and writhing. I did not mind the vow of celibacy as much as I felt ashamed that in exchange for a healthy dowry, I had given up my right to love. Of course I wondered, had Olivia meant to say she loved me? In fact, did she love the music and the note itself, her ability to sing it, or perhaps my small part in bringing it forth? And if I loved Olivia, what did I love? The note, the girl herself, or my own reflection in her eyes as someone worthy of such feeling. So my thoughts crossed from happiness to unhappiness, and I could not sleep that night. I was bound for torture, it seemed, for love itself was a sin and promised the fires of hell, and lack of love a present torture. I suffered a kind of madness that could be relieved only by some act of goodness. There my wife sat, slumped in her rocking chair, and her bony shoulders from behind were those of an old woman. She had borne such sorrow, she was dying there in that chair, too weak to rise and take herself to bed. "'You must eat,' I said softly. "'We must go to the anchoress,' she whispered. And so I answered, "'Yes.'" When I again crossed the canal to the old city to see Olivia, the deed had been done. My wife was at home in her white robes. She wore a special mantle and ring, having taken the vow with me through the little window carved for the anchoress to receive the sacrament. Olivia's nurse saw me into the study, and my hands trembled as I set down my music. As I spoke my normal pleasantries, I stuttered. But when the student entered, her greeting was ordinary and calm. Though she did not meet my eye, I wondered if I had imagined what had transpired just the week before as she began further on in the rondelle. Desire teaches me to know such sorrows that I know not what can be born of them, and then suffering locks me in her prison, vexation assaults me, and beats me hard and fast. Alas, would you decrease my pain, si vous pouvez. There it was the beautiful voice, but the tone had become slightly reedy somehow, or was it only when compared with La Pulcronota? But Olivia sensed a lack, too, for she stopped singing and shook her head impatiently. I hoped silently that I was responsible for her failure, for had I not been both happy and melancholy since her declaration of love? And Jerome tells us that melancholy is an obstacle to perfection that no sound has true beauty if it does not proceed from the joy of the heart, but I was not brave enough to console her with this information. I believe, I said, clearing my throat, that you love the music because it comes from God. That is, here I began to sweat and wiped my forehead with the long sleeve of my hoopaland. That is, you are devout and love God, and the music comes from God. All we do well is from God, every image, every sound, and we return the glory to him, and we will continue in that vein. Here she stood and attempted the lines again, but her voice cracked, and again she fell to the daybed heavily, shaking her head. I'm sorry, she stammered, blushing darkly. I have told you that I love you, she said, and you did not reply. It is shame that causes my voice to weaken." Her eyes were shining with tears. These were the words I wanted to hear, but could I erase her shame and sadness? Yes, I should tell her that I returned her love, and I should embrace her. I should sing from the song of songs. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them is bereaved. And then she would be happy. And in this way, I might hear the note again. She would love me the more for that. The devil spoke to me thus. The note is no harm. It is beautiful. And how can beauty be harmful when it brings such pleasure? And worldly love is not a sin, but only pleasure of which you have been deprived. But the Lord said, If you love the girl, would you profane her? You cannot marry her, though your own marriage be celibate, and to come each week drawing on her hope would be to crush and ruin her. I blinked, 
and regarded Olivia as if from a great distance, summoning the hate of Amnon for Tamar. You have regressed, I said, or I may have misjudged your ability. You may be capable of again reaching such a note, but it is no longer within my province. As in the beginning, before I had ever heard her sing, she lowered her head and covered her face in her hands, but this time her shoulders shook, and I saw that she hid her tears. I will find a suitable teacher to help you, I said. I could hear her sobbing as I walked down the stairs, and as I walked out through the courtyard, that mournful sound carried from the open window. I tried to remember it, for I knew it would be the last I would hear that voice. In my mind, our lessons continue, and I retrace every word and note and color of the voice, every dear ornament that rose naturally from her throat. I go back to the note to recall its pitch and its perfection. Or sometimes in dreams, the note comes to me when through the open window, a bird will trill and it lasts for what seems like an hour and then she rushes to me and I wake to find that I can no longer stand or raise my hand to feed myself and I remember. I found that day a young minnesinger as dark as my dear student and handsome with good teeth and a good position. I sent him to her as a teacher, knowing full well what would happen. The note would sound, and the same feeling would well up in her heart. She would throw her little arms around this young man, and he would be free to respond. I do not know that this happened, of course, but it is written that jealousy is cruel as the grave, and that its flashes are flashes of fire. Over the bridge and crossing home, I cried out in rage and frustration, at home, my wife lay in her white garments, still weak, though she had begun taking food. I told her I would be with her. You shall not, John, she responded, still softly. And still full of that cloying gentleness, she petted my head, cooing at me and speaking as if I were a small child. You know what you have vowed. Heretofore, I had accepted my marriage on her terms and on her father's, I was deformed and fortunate for such a dowry, yet in that moment my wife seemed a humbug in her wailing and prediction and prophecy, and I forgot the sympathy I had for her. You have tricked me, I said. St. Paul wrote that the husband must render his wife what is due her, and the wife her husband. No, she said. And she said no again and again, as I took by anger and by force what I had sworn never to take again. This was a great sin. I cannot hope to atone for it. When it was done, I pulled my clothes on and left her there, crying. I was going out, I think, and if I knew where I planned to go, I have never remembered it. Would I have left for good? Would I have gone to Olivia to proclaim my love honestly? I would like to think so. However, it was not to be. As I began to descend, I felt something at my back. At first I thought the stair had given way. The stairs, too, were rotting in that house. But later I knew it did not give way. They told me I had simply lost my footing. The neighbors found me hours later, my head twisted under me, and with such deep wounds they had to be plugged in five places. A green sapling has sprung up by the window where I have been seated, and a finch has decided to make her nest here. I can't tell why she has chosen such a place, for the branch is thin and waves terribly in the wind, but whenever I come to the window to peer out at her, the nest remains, and that bright dot of gold I discern through the tree reassures me. I wait for my wife, who comes from her visit with the anchoress to lift the spoon to my lips. For her continued attentions, I am grateful. She tells me of Sigar, the monk of St. Albans. He dwelt at Northaw, in the wood, where the nightingales abounded. 
and their song was very sweet, and his enjoyment of it immense. And so he had them killed, for he should not joy in the warbling of the birds better than the worship of God. Yet something has happened to me, so strange and wonderful that I must tell it here in the interest of the frankness I have promised. As my world narrows, I find ethereal music in the most ordinary of sounds. My wife does not suspect the delight I take in this. If I tell you the world is beautiful, then close your eyes. It becomes more beautiful still. The tanner's wagon has a song, and cries of children are as sweet as the brooks, and the geese are strong and shocking, and in the market square the cry of the bull is full with breath and moisture, and even, it seems to me, the strength of his bones. I lie in bed, or I sit here, and it seems at times that heaven itself has seen me at the window and comes to me before my time, as if it suspects I shall not reach it, the sun warming me, the little wind caressing my cheek, the green leaf of a katydid on the sill. These perfect notes sound everywhere, over and over again. For this, the Lord be praised. For all things praised. Molly. Wow. <laughs> Riveting, compelling, beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. May we talk about it? Sure. La Polkra Nota. When did you write this? Um, oh, that's a, I should have re- researched that before I came. Oh. <laughs> um, I guess it probably came out in uh, the journal called Image. It probably came out in um, 2013, and then I probably was writing it. It probably, oh, man, that probably means 2012. Well, I probably f- was writing it. 2011, 2012. Okay. Yeah. What was your life like in 2011, 2012? Well, um, I remember that, um, you know, my kids were younger. At that time, we would uh, always spend summers in a good part of the summer in New Mexico. My uh, mother-in-law lives there, and um, she has a she taught memoir writing. She's a writer, and um, she's really well-read also, and has a fantastic collection of books, and um, I think I had already gotten the idea from this for this story somewhat, but um, I came across a book of letters that she used um, to teach one of her classes, and they were old letters. And in this um, in this one letter, this man was talking about having lost his family. Um, really, I think in the span of a week, he lost all of them, each member. You know, and after each one, he thanked uh, Divine Providence for taking back to the fold this one or that one and just the stoic tone of the letter and it it really fascinated me and um I had already gotten the idea in my head that I wanted to work on this in this way to make it a, a sort of a period piece historical piece and um so um I remember working on it doing some of the research there at my mother-in-law's place um that summer and um also at at home you know um I originally thought this would be a modern story about a choir, you know, mm-hmm. um, a choir director, like a high school choir director mm-hmm. and, a, and a student. And, um, and I, I, I worked on that, but it just never kind of came off the page. And I, I, so I did some research. I went to the NIU library. I work at NIU so I can take out books for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And I went there, and the librarians at the NIU library lo- helped me find a lot of books on singing and the voice. I thought if I got into something more technical, maybe that would give the story a little life. And in one of those books, there was some history of singing and singing instruction. Mm-hmm. And there I found this idea of, um, you know, Jerome's idea of the the perfect note, teaching from that perfect note. And... Um, I just got this idea, like, wouldn't it be, like, if I had a lot of energy, a lot of time, and, you know, if I were, like, ambitious or something, I would I would actually research this and put it, set it back at that time period. But, of course, I didn't think of myself. You know, I mean, I, it sort of took me a minute to, to say, well, then why not? Why mm-hmm. not just do it, you know? It was also like a sort of giving up of time because, 
I, I knew the amount of time a story usually takes me to write, you know, maybe three months or something. Mm-hmm. I knew that I would be expanding that, that I would probably be spending the whole year first on research and then on writing it, and just for one story. But then I kind of talked to myself and said, what better do you have to do? Just do, just do it, you know? <laughs> like, I, you also think things like, well, who would publish such a thing? You know, like, who would publish something like that? I never read anything like that in a literary journal or, you know, The New Yorker or anything. I never read anything like that. Um, so I just, you know, I just thought, I just took that leap, you know, mm-hmm. expect, really expecting nothing from it, which is the best way to do anything, okay. you know? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did. And obviously, it was noticed by other people. It's a pushcart winner. It was published first in Image Journal? It was published first in Image Journal. And also, you know, if um, your listeners send things out to literary journals, it took a year for me to hear from Image Journal. And I, I actually, I had sent it out some other places, too, and I have this friend, Amy Newman. She's a poet. I know who that Great is. poet. I've read yeah. a book. I just finished oh, reading it yeah. a week ago. She's Dear a, Editor. Oh, yeah. She's, She's wonderful. Good. Yes. Yes. And she said, why not try Image? And so I sent it to Image. I waited a year, didn't hear back from them. So I kind of thought, well, this is just dying on the vine then. You know, <laughs> that's really what I thought. But then I heard from Image and they said, you know, we've had financial trouble. We were about to close down, but then we started back up and we just got your, you know, just saw your story. And if somebody else hasn't taken it, can we have it? And I was like, oh, yes, sure, <laughs> you can. And um, so and I've published a couple things with them since, and um, I really like working with them a lot. So, you know, that was just kind of a coincidence and also due to Amy's, you know, good insight mm-hmm. into it. Yeah, and then, um, you know, I don't know how those other things work, but it was li- later it was selected for the – Best American Short Stories in 2014 and the Pushcart Prize 2015. Mm-hmm. So in the same year, it it got into both of those anthologies, you know? I understand. So, yeah. well, did you send it to the anthology for... No, no, the, they do that. They do that for you. <laughs> well, actually, you have to be nominated for a Pushcart. You know, somebody has to nominate you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't really know how Best American works. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. They, I know they look through literary journals, but I'm not sure how they go about that. Okay, so yeah. you didn't contact them. You didn't submit a query letter. It just happened Mm-mm. on their own. Mm-mm. No. That's interesting. They'd probably run the other way if you tried to contact them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think Many my cases story should. should be in your collection. <laughs> oh. They probably would not. You know, we'll be the judge of that. Mm-hmm. Probably. All right, I want to go back to the divine providence taking the children away and being grateful for that and how you wrote about that, being grateful for dead children or losing your mother or losing somebody. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you have given thanks to divine providence for in your life that is really not a pleasant thing or an easy thing or really anything most people wouldn't be happy about? No, because I'm not religious in that way. Uh, you know, yeah. like I don't have that. I mean, I think you have to be, that's a very particular kind of um, uh, doctrine, you know. Um, they, but if you look through, I mean, I did a lot of research for this, and if you look through letters and documents and other things, the, this is just the way that they either saw things or tried to see things, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I think it's... Um, I think it's just part of Christianity, and, and maybe not all parts, all kinds, but this this kind in this period. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I love that you wrote about something that isn't how you feel or how you deal with life's work. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about your research into this a little bit more. I know we've already talked about it a little bit. Could you tell us how long and how thoroughly you researched this story? Well... I, it was probably six months that I spent just poring over things, but it is, um, you know, it's very different. Um, it's very different than the way an academic would do research for something because you're not accountable for the facts, really. You're just trying to fool people. You know, you're trying to create a world, but you can do that in, in, as long as you don't pull somebody out of the world by putting a, you know, a Walkman, well, that's an old reference, but, Mm -hmm. you know, let's say an iPhone in the middle of a, you know, 
a, a an old west v- village or something you know like you right. you don't want to do anything that's obvious and you want to make every everyone who reads it feel that they're immersed in the world that mm-hmm. nothing is bringing them out of the world mm-hmm. so you know you're really not writing for the expert because the expert would probably pick up your piece and say, oh, this is wrong and this is wrong, you mm-hmm. know? I can find an anachronism in just about everything. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. thinking about Fiddler on the Roof. There's, there are oh, every yeah. great work, and that's just the way life is. That doesn't bother me. Does it mm-hmm. bother you? Well, um, I try not to, to make those kinds of mistakes. Sometimes, mm-hmm. um, you know, this was the first piece I wrote that was like this. And since then, I've written some historical pieces, and I have run them by people who are, you know, experts, you know, in the field, just to see if I've made any glaring mistakes. And they've saved me from some embarrassments, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> but I didn't think to do that with this. And um, it seemed to work out okay anyway, <laughs> you know. Like, so I don't know. I mean, I think that's a good idea, but you shouldn't be too... You're not writing an academic paper, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a man who stares at John Fuller. He has leprosy, and he glares at him. And I can think of a couple of separate times when an ugly person, for lack of a better word, has glared at me, just given me the major stink eye. Mm-hmm. And I know how I've changed because of that. Do you have a situation in your life where somebody glared at you when you were just minding your own business that changed you? I don't really have that, but I think, you know, like, as you mentioned, most of us know that look that you get from people. I mean, sometimes it's homeless people. Sometimes it's people who've been deprived things in their lives, you know. Um, This man, you know, I mean, if you're a leper, you're very isolated and shunned, you know, by others. And... um, and yet you're human too. So the look that you give, the the look that you give people probably contains that. And you know this this protagonist is a boy at that time, you know. And I'm not really sure. I mean, he has this deformity, mm-hmm. but I guess that the suggestion is there's something worse wrong with you. Something really deep is wrong with you. Mm-hmm. You know. It's wrong with me, too, and it's visible, mm-hmm. thinks the leper. But for you, it's there, too. Yeah, it's Just wait and Molly. see, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that's beautiful writing, by the way. When something changes inside of you because you think a look means something or you're letting all the layers of that person in that moment of your life and it's unexpected. And I think that's very good writing, by the way. Um, now I want to go back to your religious life. You said you're not a religious person. This is a religious story. I would love it if you would share with the listeners what your religion is at home. Oh, well, um, you know, yeah, I never know. I mean, I say this a lot. I'm not religious, but I wonder if it's true. I mean, I, I was raised Methodist and there are a lot of things I like about that religion. And, um, and then I sort of fell away from that and I'm married now. My husband is um, Jewish, and so we've raised our kids. My son had a bar mitzvah. My daughter had a bat mitzvah. So we and we attend services for our family members. We go to seder's and things like that. So I mean, as far as attending services, I do more attending services in Jewish uh, tradition now. But I never did convert, you know, because it wasn't something. Um, that I was sort of, yeah, I wasn't strongly compelled to to do that, but mm-hmm. I like the tradition uh, even so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you tell us about your link to Buddhism? Well, um, I do, I practice Buddhist meditation, so I, I go on meditation, um, well, they're called courses, you sit courses, but um, there's a place in Pekatonica, it's the Vipassana Center, so I um go there periodically um, to sit for 10 days meditation, and it's silent. Um, That's really non-denominational, though. Anybody could do it. It's not, you don't have to be a Buddhist to do it, but the thing is that it's in the tradition of of Gautama, the Buddha. So um, that's, you know, um, it's a a basic um, process of, noticing the breath and the sensations in the body mm-hmm. and trying to sort of get away from the mind and the ego and all those other things um, and get to a more clear 
way of seeing things, I guess you'd say. So I it, know some of our listeners will want to do this. Is it open for anybody to register or? Yes. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. It's called Dhamma Picasa Vipassana Center and it's in Pecatonica. So it's really close to Rockford actually. Mm-hmm. And they have 10 day courses that are, um, they're by donation only. So you don't pay for them, but at the end you can donate back the money that it costs for them to feed you and mm-hmm. house you while you were there meditating. And you have uh, people who've also volunteered to make your meals and, and so on. So it's pretty. It's a pretty special thing because there's nothing commercial about it at all. It's just the goodwill of people who've done it and found it really helpful. This sounds wonderful. It is. Mm-hmm. This, it, it's not a vow of silence. It's a 10-day moment of silence. How would you describe this beat of silence that is taking place for these Well, ten- you, you don't talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you do take some precepts, you know, which is just a fancy way of saying you kind of promise, you know, I'm not going to talk during the time that I'm here. You can talk. There's a teacher, and you can talk to the teacher mm-hmm. during the course. The, there's actually, you know, um, a lot of... Although you wouldn't think there's a connection to this story because this story is a this sort of deeply Christian character and stuff, mm-hmm. um, the the sitting these courses and um, reading some of the philosophy that's uh, attached to them, it ma- made me think a lot about sort of pleasure and how we're always running after pleasure. You know, worldly pleasure is how they would talk about it in Christianity. But in Buddhism, it's also the same thing that, that you know, attached to every pleasure is the pain that comes with losing that pleasure, mm-hmm. you know? As and, referenced uh, in your story, the pause afterward as well? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. You have to keep, yeah. keep talking about that Because it's moment. like we want to get to that, um, you know, the magic moment and just stay there, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and it that's not possible and so it's almost like every pleasure we have is carries within it the seed of that pain Mm -hmm. you know and so um it always really bothered me actually I I didn't you know like I I felt for a while like well am I not supposed to enjoy things you know but I I, I, you know what I mean like oh what a bummer but it's not I I see it differently now it is it's just that you're not supposed to cling to things I mean when you when something good happens, you know full well the temporary nature of that, and you enjoy while it lasts, mm-hmm. you know, ideally. I see. I want to ask you a question that's going to seem like a non sequitur, but I swear it's inspired by this silence. Okay. Um, Maya Angelou wrote, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Are you close to that book at all or is it something you read, I've like, read it but I wouldn't say close to I mean I have books that I know okay. kind of well but that one I wouldn't I well would. I won't go too deep into it since I don't I, it'd be helpful okay I don't want to go too deep into it but she's raped and then she decides to go quiet uh-huh. she decides yeah. to be silent for many years right. mm-hmm. and in her silence she decides to listen and it's just this beautiful it's just so beautiful how she listens, every sound. And, of course, when he's listening, he hears, I think he hears, I interpret it this way, la pulcra nota in many things. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. When you go silent at your retreat, what do you hear? Oh, yeah, that's another thing. Everything, all your senses are sort of um, heightened from doing that because your eyes are closed most of the day. you know. And then you walk out, and everything is just quite wonderful, you know, like you we don't really look at things, you know, I think that's why we like to go on vacation or go to like stunning places, because it makes you actually look and pay attention. But you could be doing that all the time, you know, it's just that you have to kind (laughs) of settle your mind, you have to sort of settle Mm -hmm. in your mind, you know, you have to be actually be paying attention to what's in front of you. But you start doing that, because you're kind of closed off from all these outside things, you're not talking to people, you're not thinking about them or, um, you know, you don't have the usual sort of petty concerns that you have in daily life. So it really heightens those things. So sound is among those things. And um, also just like the small visual images, which is also part of the end of the story, Mm -hmm. almost as if those are their own sounds, you know. Mm Yeah. This is a sound, a sound. This is a story that I enjoyed reading and I really enjoyed listening to you tell it just now. It's a very, 
I don't know how to explain it. It's not just words that I'm hearing, and it's not just word pictures that I'm seeing. There's a ringing that happens when I listen and read this story. Was that an intentional response that you seek as a writer, or is that weird? Or I mean, do you know that there's an aura around your writing that fills the mind? Do you? Are you purpose- I'm thinking I, I should, you know, my husband would come up with a really good joke at that <laughs> moment. Like, you just set me up and I can't think of what to say oh. that would be funny. But I think, you know, that's a really nice thing that you said, actually. And that would be like the goal of writing something is to have that sort of aura around it that you're in. Well, I mean, I said creating a world, but you're trying to, you are trying to create a world with sound, mm-hmm. with image, so that when people are reading it, they're kind of in it, you know, they're sort of in it. So I don't know if that's what you're describing, but you couldn't possibly like really set, either you always set out to do it or you couldn't possibly actually do it. You just, you know, you aim and you go and you try and you're hoping, Mm -hmm. okay, this is going to connect in some way, Mm -hmm. you know. Well, with the sound theme, I'm wondering what, the sounds are in your everyday life, in your home. Like, what is music like in your house? Do you have a piano? Is there instruments being played at any given time? Do you have the radio on? What is? What do you surround your... What are the surrounding sounds of your life? Oh, cows, a lot of cows, because we oh, live that's wonderful. on a farm, you know. Um, so my dad's a farmer, and so there are, at any given time, you know, um, more than 100 cows maybe. So you hear them all the time. It's like, in fact, when my husband first visited there you know he was born in Chicago and grew up in Des Plaines and stuff so he said it's like Jurassic Park out here (laughs) (laughs) that was his point of reference Mm -hmm. you know but they do make a lot of noise so and then they're separated in the winter time early winter so they call to each other that's really loud and kind of agonizing but then they're also like mating and just Mothers calling to children back and forth. Uh, I guess they're calves, not children. But, you know, there's that sound is going on all the time. And then there are lots of frogs and toads this time of year. Just, oh, yes, the American toads. It's just wild mm-hmm. with them. So the, at night, it's, it's almost all you can hear. And, um, yeah, and we have owls and all kinds of beautiful sounds. Really, it's a quiet place where you can hear birds quite a bit. And I don't really, I'm not really knowledgeable about birds. My grandmother knew like every bird that would sing, she'd be able to tell you mm-hmm. what it was and stuff. And I'm not like that, but I do like to listen to their songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Have you seen a mockingbird? Have you pursued? The, I mean, have you, what is your experience with the mockingbird? Oh no, it's the nightingale. What is your experience with the nightingale? Oh, the nightingale. Mockingbird. I'm so sorry. You know, nightingale. Um, the, it's in Romeo and Juliet, you know, the nightingale. Um, singing, well, they're going back and forth. Is it the nightingale or it's the lark, you know, um, when he's leaving um, after spending the night with her? They're married. He spends the night, you know, and then he's going to leave and she keeps kind of pulling him back and they're having a, this argument over whether it was the lark or the nightingale, mm-hmm. you know, that she was hearing. So I don't really, I mean, I think the nightingale is just something I have in my mind from that, you know, like, but. Um, and I couldn't tell you what one sounds like. Okay. Yeah. Um, I wanted to also ask you, if it's okay, when you were at home and you hear all the natural sounds and the farm sounds, is there anything that you ever want to block out? Oh. Yeah, uh, well, you know, my... Uh, well, <laughs> my there's some music that I don't like, okay. you know, because my... Uh, my husband's home. My kids are home right now. Um, everybody's got their own musical tastes, you That's know. Awesome. My daughter's really loud with the show tunes, and yes, my son is yes. working out with the monster rock mm-hmm. in the basement, which I would block out. But you know, it's downstairs, but it sort of like fills the house with this sort of ominous kind of bass, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> sound. Yeah, I can feel it. Just hear, hearing mm-hmm. you describe it, I can feel yeah. it, and I love and the it, show tunes. I mean, it does. Um, yeah, those things affect you, I think, you know. I mean, um, kids like to listen to music to sort of block everything out, and adults like to turn that music down and try mm-hmm. to just talk to their kids. I think that must be the way it is, because I remember as a kid doing that, like, why doesn't my mom ever want to listen to the radio? Mm-hmm. And I'd turn it on, and she'd slowly turn it down, and that's <laughs> now that's happening to me, mm-hmm. you know, in a different format. But, yeah, it's 
the same thing. Well, I want you to know, I think you have a really cool life, but I think that you are truly one of the blessed people to have a daughter who loves musical theater. I love <laughs> yeah. show tunes, so I'm yeah, so excited that a teenager does as well. Yeah, she's great. Okay. Is there anything you'd like to share with the listeners before we sign off? Oh, gee. I don't know. This is a hard one. The free nobody form likes question. The, nobody <laughs> likes it. <laughs> I feel like if I don't ask it, um, you know, um, I'll yeah, get in trouble. You mean in relation to the story or anything something? You wanna, yeah. If there's no, something I, you want to put out there about anything that's happening in the news right now, in your life personally, in what you wish people would do as they're reading and writing, you know. For me, I hope our listeners, if they take one thing from this, it's do your research. Oh, yeah, um, that's true. And you don't have to be afraid of those things, you know, that you research. It's not hard. Librarians really love you, you know, if you do. And, and I love librarians. I've been helped so much by the librarians at, at Northern um, Illinois University, where I work. Um, that, in fact, I was just there um, a couple of days ago, and they loaded me up with a big sack, more than I could carry to my car in one trip. <laughs> and they're always, like, so um, gracious and nice. They don't hide when they see me coming. Like, mm-hmm. they're just, they just want to <laughs> help me get stuff. And so um, I realized I don't have to figure it all out for myself. I can ask the librarian, okay, this is the kind of document that I want. And they, they, they love that. They're mm-hmm. good at it. And they have helped me so much. I mean, with this, with this story and with other stories, um, subsequent stories, they've really helped me a lot. So okay. I'm a big fan of librarians. Well, we I- should double their salaries. Yes, let's. I would like to join you in the shout out to all librarians and Founders Library in particular is very good. Yeah, they're they're really good. And um, I also have a good friend who works at Stillman Valley Library. It's called Julia Hall Library Mm -hmm. and she's excellent. And um, she's also given me some advice on getting books. And um, she runs a really fantastic book club in which they read this story actually Mm -hmm. in the book club. So it's a very um, high-minded Book club. They read a lot of literary stuff. Love it. Yeah. I know some book clubs aren't high-minded and are just the opposite, that you go and you drink wine and you don't do anything Mm -hmm. but complain. So I don't belong to a book club because that was my experience. Yeah, sometimes (laughs) that's true. People don't think of me as (laughs) (laughs) high-minded. I think you got to go to Stillman Valley. Ah, I should have known. Joanna Kluver is her name. She's the librarian there. Okay. She's awesome. No, so are you. <laughs> uh, will you come back next week and share some new work? Okay. All right. Are you yes, sure I'm not forgetting to. anything? There's nothing you want to say? A shout out to anybody else? Nothing? Am I forgetting? All right. I'm out of here. Thanks, Connie. Bye. Bye. <laughs> the Guilty Pleasures Podcast is made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, Rockford Area Arts Council, The Shumway, and you, our listeners. Subscribe to Guilty Pleasures on iTunes or Google Play, or download podcasts from our website, rockfordwritersguild.org. Email feedback to editor at rockfordwritersguild.org. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at Rockford Writers Guild, and Instagram and Twitter at Guilty Pleasures. Thank you for listening. This is your producer, Jesse Kuntz. Now go write.